Welcome again, friends. Welcome uh, to our final episode of Chapter 9, uh, from verses 29 through 34, hopefully. And then the next episode, thanks to Lou, we are going to have a field trip. Right, Lou? Yes, we're going to do a field trip on the holidays, on Christmas anyway. Yes, yes. I think I think you'll find that of some interest. Um, yeah, and those of a, a Western Christian background are going to find this interesting because they're not, they don't, I didn't realize the ties between this and what we've been talking about in this whole podcast. Right. So, Lou, I'm sure you'll pepper me with questions at that time, <laughs> <laughs> but let's get through. I mean, it's like my telling my uh, grandchildren this, that you got to eat your dinner first before you can get dessert. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> so we got to get through this chapter nine. And then, as we said last time, we'll jump straight to uh, chapter 12, finish some of those chapters, and then come back to 10 and 11. By the way, right. this is halfway, right? 18 chapters, if I'm not That's mistaken. right. That's yeah. right. Exactly halfway. Hmm. So uh, chapter 9, verse 29 says, The same I am, Brahman is saying this, the same I am in all beings through Krishna. There is none hateful to me, or dear to me. I don't hate anybody. I don't love anybody. I'm the same in everybody. But those who worship me with devotion, they are in me and I am also in them. Mm -hmm. Might be a little bit confusing, <clears throat> might be crystal clear to you. But basically what he's saying is that Brahman is there as a life force within all of us. Right. Brahman doesn't care for the being in which he is or it is and doesn't hate. You do whatever you want. The Brahman could be the same as a life force within a terrorist or a saint. It's just as they said, a sakshi, a witness, somebody looking at everything you're doing, just like petrol, gas in a car. You know, you drive the car, what the car is, what the petrol is just there. I love giving, that analogy. Yeah. The, giving the ability for the car to move. Brahman gives us the ability to speak, to think, to do all of that. But really the inner workings are because of something else. So in this verse, he says, I don't care for anybody. I don't love anybody. And I don't hate anybody. You, I, the terrorist is the same to me as a saint is. The analogy that uh, one of the Swamis gave, uh, Swami Nikilanan basically said that it's like sitting around a uh, fire or campfire or sitting well better example is uh, with a bright light mm -hmm. you know somebody speaking somebody with a bright light a big crowd over there the light reaches everybody it's not as if somebody's in the dark assuming right. it's a very bright light but the people closest to the light somehow seem to be most brightly lit up so that is like those who are closest to Brahman because of their devotion seem to get a feeling within them that Brahman is close to them. Brahman doesn't necessarily feel that he loves them more, whatever, but they seem to show that ability to be closer to Brahman more than anybody else. So all of these verses from 29 to 34 essentially are talking about people getting close to Brahman, and we will see that. And from verse 30 onwards, it basically says that 30, 31, 32 says it gives hope to people who have mental agitation, people who are quote unquote sinners, those that have mental agitation because of lots of desires. 
30, 31, and 32 gives hope to sinners who hope for self-purification. That no matter how bad you are, quote unquote, with mm -hmm. your mental agitations, what you've done, you think you're an evil person, you still have great hope for getting self-realization and self-purification. So verse 30 says, even if a very wicked person worships me with unswerving devotion, he too shall be regarded as righteous indeed, for he has rightly resolved. What these verses all say, something for us to keep in mind, that if you resolve, if you make a determination to say, that's it, I'm done with my old ways of evil or whatever it was that was causing you mental agitation. When I say evil, remember, the Gita Upanishads do not qualify anything as being evil or bad, whether it be killing. Somebody asked me a question the other day. There's, is killing allowed? Killing for And the Gita doesn't say killing is not allowed, uh, whether it's cows or sheep or chicken or human beings. Right. In fact, in fact, Krishna says to Arjuna, go, kill, fight in the war because this is a righteous war. You've tried your best. You have no choice but to kill. Same thing with killing animals for food. Gita essentially says don't cause any harm to anybody if you can avoid it. But if you cannot avoid it, use your intellect. You're in Alaska. You're starving. It's cold. You're going to die. But there's salmon, plenty of salmon in the water. Mm -hmm. Would you say, you know what, I, I don't want to do this, but I have no choice. I'm going to take some fish out of the water and eat it. So Gita says, use your intellect to make that decision. So that when, he, when the Gita says wicked person, he, the Gita is essentially referring to the evil or wickedness being within your mind, causing right. you mental agitation. So even if a very wicked person worships me with unswerving devotion, he too shall be regarded as righteous indeed, for he has rightly resolved. So making the resolution is the key. What you do after that is within your control. But the, the Gita says, once you make that resolution, you will see a change in you. So once that resolution takes place, because he then says, soon he attains that eternal peace, no matter how evil he was beforehand, no matter how much mental agitation he had before that, that resolution alone makes it seem as if you've been illuminated. So illuminated brings that analogy of a dark cave. It's been dark from time immemorial. No human being has ever gone inside that cave. But the minute you strike a match or a candle or a flashlight, there's yeah. light for the first time in centuries, and it's illuminated. There's no doubt about it. So same thing over here. Once you make that resolution, that illumination takes place and you get resolved. So it's not where the person is at the time he resolves it. It is not, it is his direction and where, what is the cause of the action that he's taking, the direction, not where he's been before this. So verse 30 commends those who choose the sacred path is what Swami Parthasarthi says, because the world offers a myriad of temptations for the perceptions, for the emotions, for the thoughts. And most of us go towards those emotions, those thoughts, those sense objects that we crave. And when you're there, you get tied up in that. You get tied up because you, the wealthiest person wants more wealth, the most sensual of persons wants more sense 
uh, some gratification. And right. the most emotional of persons wants more emotions, more love, more. And the most knowledgeable of jnanis wants more knowledge. But at the end of it, the Gita and the Upanishads basically say that everybody gets disappointed and comes to naught, no much how mad, no matter how much wealth or sensual pleasures they have. But once you resolve to get past this, that resolution alone uh, helps you. So verse 31 says, soon he becomes righteous and attains eternal peace. Know for certain that my devotee never perishes. Never perishes meaning he, he becomes immortal because he becomes self-realized. Because he is righteous, he attains eternal peace because he reaches enlightenment. Once he becomes righteous, he attains eternal peace because he resolves his internal thought processes change. Remember we said this last time in the last episode. You get the knowledge, that's the way to do it. And just hearing what we're talking about right now, that's all you have to do. That knowledge changes your thought pattern, mm -hmm. changes, therefore, your desires, because if your thoughts aren't on those things, sensual objects, feelings, emotions, knowledge, just want to be doing the right thing. Once that happens, your desires change, and then your actions change. And so you become closer to becoming self-realized. You become more self-developed. So, in fact, the internal thought processes change without your conscious awareness that they're changing. This is the beauty. As you resolve and you keep focused on what you're doing, your internal thought processes change, and you, you get eternal peace within yourself. And you yourself say, how did I become so good? Mm -hmm. What changed in me? You really right. realize that yourself. So my devotees never perish. And in chapter 12, which we'll do next uh, after this, he describes who is a devotee, who is somebody who is really devoted to him. So chapter 32 is an important and interesting verse. Now, those who are women, keep in mind that this, before you think anything, remember, this was A, written 5,000 plus years ago. Mm -hmm. And if you understand where he is coming from, before you jump to take offense, uh, keep this in mind, okay? L hear me out fully. Yep. In this, he says, for those who take refuge in me, for those who take refuge in me, though they may be of sinful birth, sinful meaning, again, those that have agitated minds, though they may be of sinful birth, women, Vaishyas, even shudras, even they attain the supreme God. So on the surface, it seems like he's saying right. women are of sinful birth. On the surface, it seems like women can attain supreme God, but it's like, you know, we're doing you a favor kind of. That's not right. it. Yeah. Even though it was written 5,000 years ago, you say, oh, well, they, maybe they thought less of women at the time. And they didn't because, first of all, they... They praised women like anything. They held women up to a very high standard, and I will go into that. But these are referring to the mental states of people, such as the class, the caste system that was talked about. We've talked about this before. I'll mention it again. Yes. That the caste system was not based on birth. 
you were not born a brahmin you were not born a kshatriya you were not born a vaishya or or a manual labor those are the four classes the mm-hmm. top class is the one that is a priest a priest not at a church but somebody who is more spiritually inclined who basically devotes his whole life to self realization the second was a warrior a kshatriya and his was more action oriented because mm-hmm. he had to fight he didn't sit down with studies and do self realization he fought to defend the country and the third were basically traders what do i get for this i'll give you this you give me this and those are traders mm-hmm. and the last are those that don't fit in the other three categories those who are more menial manual laborers because they're not capable of um higher education intellectual kind of discourse uh fighting or whatever and neither are they good traders so they're basically manual laborers what all of these four categories are is not categories of birth but that which allows them to be more successful in what they are so they could be born in a shudra uh, a manual laborer's family but he's a genius mm-hmm. and very intellectually oriented and he becomes a brahmin there's a very interesting story that gautam jain told us i forget the names but there was this young man young boy who had to wanted to go to join a gurukula uh gurukula is at that time there was a guru and he had a school of young people that he had to choose to allow to come in so he picked the right people the right st- students around the age of 11 or 12 and they went and stayed with him then for about 8 to 10 years until mm-hmm. he thought that they were ready to go back out into the world again and by that time they were so highly skilled in the knowledge of the scriptures as what we're doing but they had to come off a good family and all of this they had to be capable of this right so this young boy went to his mother because he'd never known a father and said she he's going to ask me who is my father and she said honey i hate to tell you this but i was when i was younger when i had you a woman of ill repute i guess even in those days in india thousands of years ago there were those kind of women but she that's what she said and he she said but you know you could make something up and tell him and he said no i'm going to be honest and straightforward with mm-hmm. him and i'm going to tell him that i my mother said this that she was a, in her younger days this but she's a very good mother to me but i don't have a father mm-hmm. so he went to the guru and the guru said exactly that question and he said this is i want to join your school but i don't want to lie I don't have a father. I don't know who my father is. My mother said she was of ill repute. Mm-hmm. The guru did not ask him any other questions. And he said, "You are a man who is upright and honest and decent. You are a Brahmin. Come on in." Mm. Now, ordinarily in today's day and age, he would be considered at the lowest class. But in those days, the fact that he showed that quality of being upfront upright honest decent straightforward the he was classified as a brahmin so it's really a qualification of your personality of how you conduct yourself in life that determines whether you're brahmin or not now so here he says even those such as women vaishyas and shudras are able to reach god mm-hmm. vaishyas he says basically all you're saying is uh, uh, sorry um, all you're saying is what can i get for trading yeah. i'll sell you this you give me so much money i'll give you this you give me so much diamonds or gold they're merchants merchants yeah. yeah so he says what 
even they can stop bargaining with God and say, I'm going to give you this, please give me that. Even they can come to it and manual laborer can become. Now, why does he say about women? What this says is that women are more sentimental and emotional than men. Mm -hmm. Men are, according to the Gita and the Upanishads, men are more sense object oriented. They are more susceptible to sensual pleasures, not that women are not, okay? But in general, the greater tendency is for a woman to be more emotional, emotional right. towards her children, emotional towards her family of origin, emotional towards other things, that emotions generally tend to sway women more than they sway men is what he's saying here. Yeah. And he's saying even women can attain, attain God. So please, for all women listening to this, and for all men who might tend to be offended, he means nothing like that because in those days, in the scriptures, women were highly respected. The goddess Uma represents all the scriptures. All the scriptures are not a male uh, object. They're considered a goddess. Um, Bhagavad Gita is called Ma, mother. Bhagavad Gita is not called father. Bhagavad Gita is called mother. Hmm. Sage, the sage, Yagna Valka, taught his wife Maitri in the Briha Dharanika Upanishad. That Upanishad was given primarily to his wife. And the Aitreya Upanishad mentions women attending the lectures of rishis. So men are considered to succumb to the sense organs of the body. Women are thought to be more of an emotional nature. Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, and sinner, last point was that sinners um, are, are sinful means having mental agitation and a spiritual person pursuit requires a calm mind, which is controlled by the intellect. Right. So I was a little hesitant and a little uh, afraid of this particular verse, but it's thought to be a very important one in the Gita. And you gave it the correct context, which is important. I'm glad. Verse 33 says, how much more than holy Brahmins and devout royal sages, having reached me, this transient joyless word, you reach me. So he's saying holy Brahmins are basically people who are, like we said, Brahmins, but those who are predominantly sattvic in nature. They think clean, they're equanimous, etc. He belongs to the highest cadre of human beings of being sattvic. His intellect is clear, is contemplative, the Brahmin, not because of birth, but because of qualities. And a king, a royal sage, is a person, we've said this before, is called a Raj Rishi. Raj meaning king, Rishi is sage. Having reached high levels of material success, power, money, gold, prestige, everything, he's a king, he now says, there's nothing in this, I realize this, I want to study more spiritual kind of things. So. Then he becomes a sage. Such a royal sage has already accomplished everything. And so he leads a saintly life, uh, a prosperous person who has spiritual inclination. Why? Because why do you seek Brahman in the first place? Many people seek Brahman and they say, I don't, I don't want to seek Brahman. I want material success. But those who seek Brahman do feel materially fulfilled. But by the time they're actually seeking it, the material means less to them. 
They want to more, do more to give it away. And the spirituality gives them a calmness in the mind and ideas and clear thought processes in their, um, in their intellect. And the transient joyless word means the joy, whatever you get from sensual life, material life is transient. It passes away. Only the mind enjoys the joy. You don't really stay. It doesn't stay with you. Right. And the actual enjoyments of sense objects are subjective, not objective. And he then says that this world is joyless, ursucum, because worldly pleasures diminish to ultimately zero because it's anityam, temporary, like this world, this life, all temporary, anityam. Last verse, number 34. Throughout life, we go through childhood and it's playing. Youth, we run after various pleasures. Old age is constantly worrying, 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 chinta. However, when you choose God in the beginning, you won't believe it, but as time keeps passing, you move towards God. God has taken that responsibility. Brahman has taken that responsibility. So verse 34 says, fix your mind on me, be devoted to me, sacrifice to me, bow down to me, thus uniting yourself to me, taking me as the supreme God, you shall come to me. Now, that may seem to be pretty egotistical if you were thinking of Brahman as a human being. But when he says me, recognize that what he's talking about is every living being in this world. And every piece of nature, a tree, uh, uh, you know, those of you who have seen the movie Avatar, you've, yeah. did you see that movie, Luke? Yes, I did, yeah. Fantastic. So in that, there's a lot of what the Gita is talking about. You remember when they had to kill an animal, even to eat it. Yes. After they killed the animal, they bent down, they apologized, they prayed to it, they gave a lot of respect. Um, similarly, they didn't touch any trees, they prayed to the trees, they gave respect to trees, and all of nature. What Brahman is saying here through Krishna is, fix your mind on me about all of nature, all living things, all living beings, trees, plants, mountains, stones, be devoted to me sacrifice to me, bow down to me, thus uniting yourself to me. You become one. Develop, where's your mind is what he's basically saying. Is your mind on sensual objects, material right. objects, money, power, fame, beauty. Dedo dedicate yourself to me, not a temple. Believe me, it's not a temple, not a church, not Krishna, not Ganesh. He means every being, everything in which we have said earlier episodes that God exists. So um, mind fixed on me means the intellect is firmly fixed, centered on not allowed, allowing the mind to go into the past or the future, present. That's me. Be devoted to me means keep your bhakti, your devotion towards God instead of the enchantments of the world. Sacrifice to me meaning serve to me. Whatever you do, keep thinking of me. And bow down to me, meaning surrender your ego completely to me. Be humble, be grateful, and give thanks to others, which is basically what we do 
in at the time of, say, Diwali or Christmas or whatever. So that's what's going to lead us to our next episode, which is on Christmas. And we give thanks to Chapter 9 for here. We're going to stop. And then next time, we'll after we do the field trip, we'll go to Chapter 12. So thank you very much, friends, for joining us. We'll see you next time.